in any normal year, the GCSE and A-level exam period would be starting about now. But there's scarcely any need to point out that this isn't a normal year. You might be forgiven for thinking that in the absence of exams, there would be less pressure and a distinct lack of need to revise. However, across the country, albeit to varying degrees, schools are rolling out assessments in a bid to secure much-needed evidence for grades. So just what was it about the cancelled exams that's giving rise to the need to be tested? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at the grade awarding process for 2021 with the head of the organisation that's helped to shape the process. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Philip Wright. Philip is the Director General of the Joint Council for Qualifications. JCQ is a membership organisation comprising the eight largest UK qualification providers. Philip has over 20 years' experience working in public and regulatory affairs, largely in the life sciences sectors, including leading international outreach and activities in a number of different organisations. Philip, many thanks for joining me today. We know that exams are cancelled and that there are no externally set or moderated assessments. However, many of our students seem to be finding themselves faced with fresh rounds of mocks as teachers hurriedly gather the materials that they need to support their grade judgments. In particular, a significant number of parents, and perhaps some teachers too, seem to be at a bit of a loss as to exactly what's happening and what constitutes evidence. Philip, there's an interesting tension, isn't there, between asking teachers to exercise their judgment and then also maintaining a system that can be relied on. Is there a process for helping teachers make these determinations? First of all, thanks for the opportunity to come and speak with you today. I think we all recognise, first and foremost, the pressure, you know, students and indeed parents are under, but also the schools themselves. You know, this has been an extraordinary period. We all know that. I don't really need to say it, but I will say it again. You know, we've had effectively, we will have had effectively two exam seasons where there haven't been regular exams. I think the other thing is that I also sit on the other side of the fence. I have a teenage daughter who's currently in year 12. So I've been through it from both sides and really do understand the issues and pressures that everyone is feeling under at the moment. And let me just maybe just try and contextualise it. Obviously, with the exams being cancelled again this summer, what we wanted to do was to try and provide a framework under which the teachers could determine the grades of students in as fair a way as possible. These weren't meant to be just plucked out of the air. They're meant to be based on evidence, evidence of student performance, what they've done in the classrooms, in lessons, in homework, 
and of course in they could be classroom tests they could be mock exams and other sorts of activities that you know maybe teachers use routinely during a year to provide evidence of how that student is progressing and what we've been asking as part of this is that there should be a range of evidence not just one piece there should be a range of evidence that teachers draw upon to actually determine the grades and that's the key point it shouldn't just be based on one thing it should reflect what they've been taught during the year or the two years and you know it should be hopefully as consistent across a class or a cohort a class as possible so that you don't cherry pick teachers should not be cherry picking just the best bits they should be reflective of the whole range of that student's performance in the content that they've been taught because, of course, as you mentioned, this year, as distinct from last year, this is very much about the performance that the students at, so the level they're at right now, rather than what they might have got if they'd sat in an exam. And that presumably is then why this role of evidence is so key. Yes, it is. And it's why we've been trying to support the teachers and the exam centres. Those are the schools and colleges who actually enter, enter students for exams. We've been trying to help them and support them with as much range of information and as much support materials that they can use. And the JCQ role, you know, in a normal year, you said JCQ is probably an organisation not many people have heard of. That's absolutely true. But during a normal year, what we do is we provide the instructions for how exams should be carried out. We provide you know, information on how the desks should be spaced, you know, you shouldn't be taking smartwatches into exam halls, things like that. What could and should be done during an exam and what shouldn't and what, you know, effectively how you deal with cheating when it happens. So we do that framework range for assisting exam centres to make sure that they're carrying out exams consistently, not just within one centre, but across England and also Wales and Northern Ireland and to a lesser extent, Scotland as well. We do have a member from Scotland as well. So we try and provide that glue, that framework in which exams are operated. So this year we're doing a similar thing. But of course, the exams aren't happening. But what we've done is we've produced the guidance and we've also produced some support materials for students and parents on our website. So we've produced that material to provide the guidance for centres of how they should approach and support teachers in determining grades. So we provide that glue. So there's a lot of information behind that. Hmm. It's difficult, oh, well, it must be difficult, to try to provide a framework that unifies all of the nations, but certainly the GCSE and A-level exams, at a point where actually you've got what must be broadly infinite variety that sits underneath them. In a normal year, and keep saying that, and in my head I'm picturing air quotes, so in, a, in this normal year, sit down in an exam and it's a standard set of questions across exam boards and so on. But the evidence that you mentioned before, although there are some ideas that have been put out there about what might constitute it, as you said in your opening, actually this could be anything from classwork through to mock exams that have already been set or that could be set. So just how do you try to get across that sense of consistency when you've got no real idea what teachers are going to be calling you? So that is the challenge this year. And actually, we want to provide the flexibility for the teachers because each school will actually, in different regions of the UK and even within a region, will have been affected in different ways by COVID. And so what we've tried to do is not necessarily, you know, we, we haven't done a hierarchy of the type of evidence that should be used. We haven't done a waiting for it. We've left that to the teachers' judgments. I mean, they have 
have experience of doing classroom assessments for many, many years. What we're trying to do is support it. So one of the ways we do that, for example, is by actually the, all of the exam boards for their particular subject and what we call specification for an exam, whether it's at GCSE or A or AS level. And what they've done is they've provided what we call grade descriptors. And this is, for a particular subject, the sorts of knowledge that that student should be demonstrating to achieve that grade. So what we're trying to do is provide direct examples of evidence that will help the teacher make the decisions from the evidence that they have. And that's critically important. The other point the exam boards have done, I think, which has been really helpful is, you know, they have used you know, past exam papers and exam questions. They've repackaged them into a topic level because normally they'd be mixed into an exam paper. And what they've done is they've then provided support, some exemplars for the teachers to understand what's a good example of a student answering a question at the different grades. And they've also mapped that back to the curriculum and the teachers can identify what have been taught and what are the right questions that they can draw upon. They won't use them all necessarily. They may use a basket, they'll mix them up and the students won't have seen it in that way. So what we're trying to do is provide a framework for teachers to make those decisions through the grade descriptors and also to use tools such as the additional assessment materials that they can use within the context of their school. Because therein lies the problem, doesn't it? That You want this flexibility for teachers to allow them to use a holistic judgment, which was something that came across really strongly when we talked to Simon Liebus from Ofqual. But at the same time, that square peg needs to get into the round hole that is a grade. So they still need this sort of rigid outcome of being able to say it's this number or this letter. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, that holistic judgment and what I tried to reinforce was the point that the evidence should try and cover as much of the spectrum that the student has been taught. So we've been very clear that centres should not, for example, identify 10 pieces of evidence that they might draw upon and only draw upon the five best for a student. That's not the right way of doing it. What we're asking them to do is to identify the pieces of evidence, who knows how many, three, five, more, and then they have to provide actually a record of assessment of that, what they're going to use for that cohort. So it's a consistent. So it's not just reflective of what the student is being taught and understanding across what they have been taught, but it's also fair from student to student. Now, there may be some students, of course, who have maybe had to isolate more or have had a, actually a different illness, which has you know, even further disturbed their education and learning this year. And in those instances, the teachers can use an alternative form of evidence. But what they need to do is they need to record that separately. So it's evidenced. So we have to have to have a framework which is consistent because it's not just being fair for the student. It's being fair across the whole school and between schools. It is a very tricky thing. And you're right. I mean, every school has been affected slightly differently by COVID. Every student has been affected slightly differently of COVID. And, you know, we had very clear steer from the Secretary of State for Education that what we're trying to do is to really assess what the students have been taught during the last two years. So it seems a little paradoxical, I guess, that on the one hand, we want to rely on teacher holistic judgment. But what, actually what we want you to do is stick to the same pieces of evidence across your class. I understand why, but it's difficult, isn't it, to reconcile that piece? Because if student A didn't do as well as 
the teacher might expect in one assessment, their holistic judgment would tell you that they should have had a seven, the grade might tell you out of this mock that they've determined to use for their class, that they are on a five. So how does that push and pull work? So what they should do is they should look across the piece and not just look at that one piece of evidence. They should look at the wider evidence that they have and make a decision. And one of the things we've done is for exactly this sort of question, we've actually illustrated that in guidance on grading for teachers. So how do they come to those judgments where there is different performance levels and different outcomes or different challenges for the student? The one thing I would say is that even in, you know, and I'll use your quotation marks in the air, even in a normal year, students perform differently on exam days to each other. So you always get variation. And some, you know, do better than others. Some do better than they expected. Some do worse. So that's not different. I suppose in some ways, I think this is almost slightly more how would you put it? It's better in the sense that the teacher has the opportunity to look at that holistic picture, look across the piece of the evidence. But they need to go back and consider how that evidence of what that student's knowledge and capabilities, how that feeds into the grade descriptors, because that's the element and the framework for deciding and determining grades this year. Because I wonder whether there's, and something we've been hearing actually from a lot of parents, is my son or daughter has been predicted a seven through our English language for the course of this year. They've been steadily rising. But now my teacher is telling me that my child has got to go and do some more tests because actually all we can do is evidence of four. Now, obviously, there are particular issues, I guess, with, <laughs> with, that, with that teacher and, that, and the way that that's set up. But is there, do you think, a move that will say, well, actually, I feel that this child is working at a level seven. And therefore, this piece of evidence that doesn't support that must be wrong. So I'll need to find some other evidence. Because as you say, the teachers should be looking across the piece and using their judgment. How much of that do you think is going to come into play? That's hard to know, I think. I mean, it depends upon the individual students. And it may also depend upon when the evidence was collected. I think what I would say is, is if they achieved a four in one area, but they achieved sevens, eights and nines in another, then the teacher must look at that in the round. And then think about, you know, what that student's has demonstrated in the evidence that they're using. And then again, I said, tie it back to the grade descriptors that are available. I think that's critically important. And one of the things we found this year quite clearly is that teachers, I think, are starting to realise the value of actually having exams and assessments throughout and during the year. And actually, we've heard a lot of feedback from students as well, that actually they do value the opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge in this way. So... But all I would say is there are still opportunities. I know there are still centres still completing some additional assessments. You know, all I can encourage the students is to do their best and continue learning. And I think also, even once they're done, I think there's a bigger issue here, that it's not just about the assessment, because the students have lost a lot of learning time. Even if they think their teacher's got the evidence they need for the grading for this year's awards, I think... Going forward, whether they're going from GCSE into ASA levels, whether they're going from A levels into higher education or alternative vocational education, there are going to be instances where you know, they will have may not have covered all of that curriculum they would have done in previous years. So they should still be using the opportunity to try and make sure they're as best prepared for the next steps in their learning as in a normal year. So I think that's one of the critical things. Even though assessments may be going on at the moment and when they stop, I mean, I'm certainly hoping that 
teachers will be continuing to teach and bring them back up to speed in the areas that they may not have been able to cover during the years. This whole period of time has has been quite interesting to think about the role of exams and the significance, I guess, of them. And I think it's shown for some people that actually the two years of GCSE or A-level almost feels like it builds up towards the exam. When, of course, the exam isn't the be-all or shouldn't be, I guess, the be-all and end-all. It's an indication of the performance over two years. And so the dip test of the assessments that go throughout, I think, is an interesting marker for progress, for areas that you maybe need a bit more concentration on or technique and those kinds of things. But the moment you pull that rug of the exam away from that terminal exam, away from that learning, actually you do then sort of question, well, what was it all about? Yeah, I'd slightly disagree with that. I mean, I think one of the things we found, and it's actually come out very clear, is that exams are the fairest way and most robust way of actually assessing a student's capability and competence at that point in time. And actually what it does is it makes it fair not just for a student in a school compared to his classmates or their classmates, and then it doesn't just make a difference in terms of one school down the road versus another school up the road. What it creates is a level playing field. We also need to reflect that, you know, some exam systems in Wales and Northern Ireland use a more unitised approach. Of course, in England, we have a a more endpoint assessment, although there are some subjects, particularly art design, performance arts, that require what we call non-exam assessments. That's in-year assessments, which are non-terminal examinations. So there is a mix there, but I think the system has proved very effective as being able to support progression and the right progression for that student. It helps progression not just into maybe further academic learning, it can support progression into vocational training. And I think it's also important to remember it's not just about necessarily, you know, GCSE, ASA levels, it's also about some of the other vocational qualifications that are out there. And we've been working with with our members and, and indeed the four largest vocational and technical qualification providers in our own membership too. So we've also been keeping a monitoring eye on that and looking at how we can support those as well. So things like BTEX, for example, you know, Cambridge Technicals, all of those sorts of qualifications are quite important. So what we're trying to do is to make sure that with exams, we're trying to get the fairest system for every student and then help support them in their progression. I think everywhere, you know, you have exams, tests or assessments. And, you know, even when you go into work, you're going to have some form of many disciplines are competency based, particularly in some vocational areas where you have license to operate. So I actually think that in exams play a significant role, which I think the last two years have really brought into sharp relief the role that they really do play in providing that fair and level playing field. And it's actually not just within the year, it's also between years. I think there's an an interesting one, and I'm sure we could talk for hours on the idea that they're the fairest way, because I guess when you're talking then, it very much comes down to what you think the exam is for. And I guess we should also separate out the actual function, the thing of the exam, and the resultant grade. Because as you say, the overwhelming majority of GCSEs and IGCSEs, it's terminal exam, linear progression through to one final seat. So yeah, it's that reflection, I guess, on whether or not your grade as we're seeing now, is holistic based on really, I think, that sense of what a teacher did, as opposed to how you've performed in the one and a half or two hour slot. So to a certain extent, that's a government decision on the linearity of exams. 
But actually in Wales and Northern Ireland, that's not the case at all. You have a very modular approach. So you can have a different balance. That's a decision. And, you know, JCQ has managed and coordinated. And basically, Errol, we do what the exam boards need us to do to provide that coordination. But what we're trying to do is to, you know, reflect and implement what government policies are and support the teachers and the centres, whichever country they're in. As I said, we do much, much less in Scotland, but certainly we engage a lot in Northern Ireland and Wales as well as England. And as you said, I saw that SQA, the Scottish Qualification Authority, are members. And as you quite rightly point out, although we tend to talk about GCSEs and A-levels, that's a catch-all really for the BTECs. And I also noticed that City and Guilds are again another one of your membership organisations. And I think that's really interesting as well, the way that these vocational qualifications and the government's new T-levels really are forming a more significant, I guess, part of that menu of choice that's being offered to students. How much of that do you think is a reflection on the changing work environment? It's a good question. I've been involved in this sector for many, many years. And I think there's been a continual wish to promote and sustain vocational training and qualifications as an alternative route. And it may be, I think we're finally getting there. I think the T-levels are a good good idea and we need to see how they're implemented and what the take-up is. And of course, it's early days, but I think they really are an opportunity to provide an alternative to A-levels and to support students who want to go into that more, I suppose, vocational technical areas of work, which are exceptionally valuable across the UK. And I think that hasn't been recognised or fully implemented before. So fingers crossed, I think you're right. I think it's partly to do with the way where working is changing, but also I think because, you know, it's one of those things we've been trying to do for a number of years and we haven't quite cracked it. And I think we are on the verge of doing that. I think you see that more as well when you look through to the higher education and universities, that many more vocational degrees are happening. So not as an alternative for people who maybe didn't do as well in A-levels, by any stretch, you've got very large organisations offering these vocational degrees to exceptional students with demands that are three A's and so on. So it is interesting, I think, to see how the world of work is changing and the impact that that might have on the grading and on the way that education is provided. As you mentioned before, part of the role of GCSEs and A-levels are to show preparedness for the next stage on. If I were to have got a four in history at GCSE, it's unlikely that anyone would recommend I would do history at A-level, for example. But this year, the distribution of those grades is likely to be atypical, I think, (laughs) diplomatically, to previous years. What kind of impact do you think that's going to have on students and also on further and higher education providers? I think there's two things to say. First of all, we won't really know what the shift has been until we get the results in, and then we'll be able to look at it and analyse it. And it's interesting, all that we've said this year is that schools should be cognizant of previous results in normal exam years, but they shouldn't slavishly follow that at all in terms of awarding grades this year. They must be drawn upon academic judgment or vocational judgment, a vocational qualification of what the student has achieved and its knowledge. I think the issue is, is that, you know, we've actually been engaging with higher education sector and members do as well directly. And we speak frequent with UCAS. So we do forewarn and, you know, they are forewarned about the results and the differing results that they might receive. So hopefully you know, it would still be fairly smooth and it would say a fair transition into the next stage. So there are discussions going on behind the scenes and higher education is aware in terms of their admissions policies. 
And while I agree, obviously, that we really need to see the results in order to be able to talk about the change in distribution, I'm also presuming that you wouldn't take a wager against me that grades will see significantly more passes, significantly more higher grades than we have in previous years. Because even, and we heard this from a previous guest, Adam Boxer, I think, that even completely accepting, as I do, the professionalism of teachers and the role that they have, actually what we're still looking at is human judgment and the optimism that a teacher might have that says, well, if they were a six or a seven, why would you err to six? And I do accept them, and we haven't talked about it, but that the grade descriptors are there, but they are either deliberately or by necessity open and broad. I think I said vague before when talking to Colin Hughes, and he looked at me sternly, so I won't say that again, but certainly they are at best, ambiguous. I yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that's better than vague, though, is it? Have I just taken a step back? Well, I, I'm not sure it is. I think I have to I decide with Colin on that one. I think, you know, you make a good point. And I think the point is, is that, you know, we've tried to provide a little unit on objectivity in awarding. But, you know, understandably, I think teachers will want to consider the evidence. They will consider it as well as the best knowledge, the most optimistic knowledge. It's almost like if they were to go into an exam on their best day, what would they achieve? Not necessarily what would they achieve with a normal type of exam series. So I think you're absolutely right. I think whether there will be significant grade inflation, we'll have to wait and see. We saw some last year because, of course, the moderation process was stopped by government, understandably, because I don't think there was enough communication about what that moderation process was and how it would work. So we did see some great variation between centres on that. The one thing I would say this year is we are looking at those centres that have significantly inflated grades. So if you're in a centre and you're worried about the school down the road, if they have what really are, you know, if they're giving all of their students A grades or significantly increasing the grades from previous years or what the prior attainment of the students would expect them to achieve, then you know, there will be a, there's a quality assurance process to go in and look at that. So that's why we've also built quite a big quality assurance process that the exam boards are working together on with the centres. And it's really been down to the exam boards driving that. And the idea is to support the centres, not necessarily to undermine them. It's to create that fairness, that level playing field. But I think you're right, going back to the point you made, teachers will look optimistically at the evidence that they have. And as we said earlier, not refute evidence that goes against their feeling, but look for evidence that does support that and we're encouraging that aren't we because of that holistic judgment and that's what we were saying before yes and no but this is where the range of evidence comes in and is important so that range of evidence should be very much looked at and this is the idea of having it as a consistent across a cohort this is why we have said that there shouldn't be cherry picking sort of you know they, they list 10 and pick the best five that shouldn't happen let's face it i mean if there was cherry picking they could just pick the very best result if they got the maximum and they could all get, you know, nines or A stars. So, and that wouldn't be fair to anybody. It really wouldn't. It wouldn't be fair to the student actually who got that, who unrealistically got it, trying to progress in their careers. But it wouldn't be fair on all the others either. So the whole purpose of what we're trying to do, you know, asking for a range of evidence that is consistent, providing the grade descriptors, providing the additional assessment materials, with the marking exemplifiers. All of that is trying to build a system by which teachers can make as an objective a decision in terms of that holistic range overview of what that grade should be determined for that student. And so do you think that's why there seems to be 
rush, I think, is possibly a little unfair, although time is ticking on, for teachers and presenters to turn to the exam boards, take some of their papers, as you say, by topic, and then do these tests so that looking forward, they can have that kind of evidence that they can tie back to the grade boundaries. Because that, of course, is the other aspect, isn't it? That you can mark a piece of work that was a substantial piece of homework. Teacher is confident that it's the student's own work. But actually getting 70% isn't necessarily an indication that that's a seven, eight or nine. It just shows that it's 70%. You need that ability to tie it back to a standardised marking boundary, which teachers may not have needed to have done in the past because, of course, not even mocks are moderated. That's right. Actually, if you think about it, an exam paper is not just a series of questions of all the same standard. Within an exam paper, you have different standards to exemplify different levels of attainment within the different topic areas. And what we also see is that, you know, it takes probably two plus years to actually properly develop an exam paper and quality check it before it goes out into, that's two years. This year we've had a much shorter period. But what that means is as well is that even with that happening, you still get variation in how, I say easy, how the level of difficulty of each paper can vary slightly year on year. And that's why there is a, the grade boundaries normally move slightly from one year to the next just because they can't be identical, because, of course, everybody would know the questions then. So there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to look at that. But you're right, it is different this year. And as much as what we're asking the teachers to do is to actually take basically the evidential base they have and map it back to those grade descriptors, which is a very different process. And, you know, I don't envy them. I know the challenge that we're putting the teachers under. And I think one of the things that we're concerned about is also that, you know, there is a level of understanding of the difficulty of what teachers have to do here. Absolutely. I don't think there's any denying that. And I think also they seem to be at the very sharp end because having determined the grades, which is a combination of their holistic judgment and academic judgment professionalism and a consistent set of evidence so they're not cherry-picking. Ultimately, though, the teachers are the ones who are signing off on the fact that this pupil got a six. The issue, of course, will then come that should the teacher have been predicting sevens throughout the course of two years, now it's firmly at the teacher's door to justify how that difference is the case, isn't it? I mean, can you see there being a backlash? And I don't think this is going to be across the board for a second. I don't mean to be melodramatic, but there will be instances surely where actually students, parents are now going to feel that the teachers have fallen short of where they should be. Okay, so there's several things here. One is, one thing we're very clear about is that, you know, if you go back to what I said earlier, it's that range of consistent evidence that is used as the decision-making piece across the group of a class, a group of students. So there is some level of consistency there. I think the other thing is that they've got the evidence. That's the whole point about the habit, requesting that range of evidence, and I'm not just saying plucking things out of the air by the teachers. So there is evidence. I think the other thing is, is we've been quite clear that we are there to support teachers and that, you know, certainly parents and students should be asking and having discussions with their teachers and the senior leadership team about what the evidence base they're using. But actually, we do not want teachers to be put under unfair pressure or stress by parents you know, that is now logged as a piece of malpractice. If that happens, and there is a real evidence of that happening, 
then you know it can be reported as malpractice by the centre. Hopefully it will happen in vanishingly small cases, but it is there if teachers need it. You mentioned before about the evidence being used in the discussion with the students, and just want to pick up on that, that the two interesting aspects, I think, that come out of this discussion that the teachers and centres should be having with pupils about the evidence is that they will talk to them about what that evidence is and that it supports their grade judgment. But this isn't a negotiation. It's not for the students to say, actually, I don't think that's my best piece. I'd much rather you used this instead. And further, the teachers aren't allowed to, at that point, say what grade it is that they're providing. Absolutely. So, you know, absolutely, it's not a negotiation. And again, this comes back to that cherry picking point I was making earlier. It's not fair. It's not fair within the school, within the class, and it's certainly not fair across the country. So that's very clear. I think this point about transparency, to me, is the key point. And I think what we're trying to do is to help students in particular understand this is not, you know, a normal exam year. Their teacher should be talking to them about what evidence they're drawing upon, whether it's some of the work they've done previously, whether it's, an up, well, hopefully most, suspect most of the assessments have been done by now, but there may be some more going on during May before the submission window for the grades in middle of June. So it's critically important, I think, that that discussion and clarity of the evidence occurs. And certainly I would hope that schools are communicating with students and parents on that. I understand the virtue, the benefit of having transparency in this, but I can't help but wonder if any good can come from teachers sharing what evidence they're providing, because the students, if they disagree or they don't like it, or are not in a position to do anything about it. So I just wonder why. I think the problem is, is if it wasn't happening, there would be a massive, massive outcry about, you know, it would be smoke and mirrors, wouldn't it? It would be a black box development of the grade. And I think that would be wrong. I think it's not so much what can they do about it. I think it's openness and awareness. And it may be that they have, you know, some students will actually have a situation where justifiably they can ask a piece of evidence to be reconsidered. And so, for example, if, for example, a student with SEN needs or what we call access arrangement requirement for an exam or a test or an assessment that was being used that wasn't properly put in place for that exam and assessment, then they could think about either excluding or considering the impact on that outcome of that. So there may be instances where they would want to think about, uh, a student might want to think, well, actually, that was unfair for a very specific reason, you know, I broke my leg or I had my arm hurt or just as during a normal exam year, you know, you can ask for something called special considerations to be taken into account for a close family bereavement. So those things, of course, operating differently this year, but the teacher should be taking those into account where it's appropriate. So I would generally say it shouldn't be a common thing, but there is an opportunity as well for students who have a real reason. And again, it won't be a large number, but those who have a real reason can actually ask with an argument about why that teacher then to reconsider that piece of evidence. So not a balanced, equal-sided negotiation, but an opportunity to put across a point of view. Yes, a justifiable you know, rationale or reason why something shouldn't be included. And that just doesn't mean, oh, I had a bad day and I... I didn't bother you know, revising or I didn't do the work for that test and I got a poor mark because of it. If I'd have had done the work, I would have got a better mark. 
that shouldn't wash. <laughs> Although I wonder how many people will try that. Mm. Because I think it would be quite interesting to look at the, well, if there were any, but of course there's, these conversations aren't being recorded for posterity to see actually how they go down. This is very tricky, isn't it? The whole thing, and again, we come back to this impossible, I would suggest, balancing act of flexibility versus an expected outcome, that the exercising of teacher judgment is, as we heard from Colin in a previous episode, is based relative only to their cohort. They don't know what's happening in the school down the road. And so to exercise teacher judgment, say, I think this pupil gets a seven, only to find out that actually the teacher's idea of a seven is not the same as another teacher's idea of a seven and therefore regraded, I think, could then still come as a shock and, and not something I don't think the parents are necessarily aware of. That's why I'll go back to the grade descriptors. We have to have some pegs, I suppose, in the board around which the teachers should be justifying their decisions. And so the grade descriptors are important for that in terms of the sorts of knowledge and capabilities that the students should be expected to demonstrate with each of those grades. So that is absolutely the point. I mean, I think you're right though. What we saw last year when the algorithm wasn't used, we have seen significant variation between schools. And you know, we shouldn't break any bones about that. What we're trying to do this year is provide a framework and a quality assurance process and an appeals process that supports the teachers in making the decision and reaching that, and then making sure it flows through and that if students aren't unhappy, there is a backstop for them, you know, to say, actually, the judgment isn't reasonable and I want to have it reviewed properly. So we're trying to create that more consistent playing field by having those mixing metaphors here, having those pegs, clear pegs in the board to say what we would expect at those different levels of performance. And again, taken as part of that holistic judgment because they will have been taught some, but not necessarily all of the course as in a normal year. The great descriptors that come out, of course, are published on the JCQ website, freely available for anyone to read. And as I said before, they are quite clearly broad. I think in a number of instances, something like a seven might be, the description broadly comes down to more than a six, but not as much as an eight. But also it's true then that the exam boards themselves have created, using this as a template, their own subject-specific grade descriptors, which I don't think are available to the public, certainly not across the board if some of them have released them that I've seen. But teachers do have those. So there's a more prescriptive, presumably more prescriptive language in the exam board subject-specific descriptor. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what you need to think about is I'd be worried if it's just the grade descriptors they're supporting and helping the teachers make the decision. There's also the additional assessment materials and all that supporting other materials that the teachers can access via the exam boards directly. And that's right, because it's specific to that specification, maths or biology or whoever, whether it's Edexcel, Educas, you know, or OCR, or indeed AQA. So it's got to be specific for those different exam boards in more detail. And as you say, that sort of provides that framework. And then there are also the provision of past papers, mark schemes, exemplars, and all this other, I guess it's, it really is, I'll, um, I'll throw my own metaphor into the ring, it really is almost like trying to provide a framework for shepherding cats. <laughs> yeah, I have to, you know, take my hat off to the exam boards. I mean, I knew what it was like in JCQ, and JCQ is actually quite a small organisation centrally, but we have access to this wonderful expertise across all of our members who work really collectively and actively together. I would say, you know, we do a lot of collaboration internally. We do collaboration as well with a lot of teacher associations, unions, and we consult and speak, get their views. And there's also another organisation called the Exams Office who represents what 
they have an exams officer in every school. So we work with them as well to try and make sure what we're doing is sensible and usable within a school or college. So we have this massive amount of collaboration that you won't have seen. And on top of that, the exam boards at a subject level have come up with this massive amount of material. And you're thinking about doing it for one subject, but they're doing it for all of their subjects. You know, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of documents that each of them have produced. You know, to me, in the time available, and we might think that going back to the announcement on the 4th of January seems a long time ago. Well, it does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? But actually, that was the 4th of January announcement. And what we then had to do was to change everything. Ofqual and DfE had to do a lot of consultation because they couldn't just come up with an idea about how they should award. They had to do a consultation. So each of those separate consultations took at least 14 days, plus the time to analyse you know, one of, I think one of their consultations, the DfE got 100,000 submissions. So they had to look at that and then they had to put it into regulation. Now, clearly, we inputted and were interacting with them all the time to try and make it, I think, as fair and as reasonable as possible for all students. But that's why it's taken the time. And on top of that, the exam boards produced this massive amount of material in line with those regulations and requirements of Ofqual and the requirements of DfE. And so finally, thinking about the amount of time that it's taken then to come through, and it was, as you say, a Herculean effort. I believe it was the initial off-call consultation on the alternative arrangements that generated, as you say, over 100,000 responses. We know that the impact isn't just for the 2021 cohort. The disruption to education is going to reach into 2022, certainly, and beyond. At what point, if it hasn't already started, do you expect that the machine might start looking at what next year will look like? To be honest, we've already started looking at it. Obviously, our priorities are in on 2021, but we have had to start thinking about it. I mean, what we'd like to see is thought going on a bit earlier so teachers can prepare for next year. And also, we'll continue to communicate with them as best we can, particularly the exam centres. But I think we're certainly will be working with Department for Education and Ofqual on 2022. And actually, it could go beyond 2022, in all honesty. Because if you think about it, the year nines have been impacted. So that could affect them in 2023. And even earlier on, we know the impacts been seen. And my wife has actually worked in a primary school in early years. So she's seen the impact there. So hopefully those younger children will be able to catch up with support. But the ones just a few years behind doing GCSEs may also, you know, there may be implications there. So we need to think about all of those. I think the other thing that we need to think about is how do we plan a route map back to a framework for standards that are fair for everybody, as we have in a normal exam year. And I think thinking about being fair to the 2022 cohort, and as I say, I have a daughter in year 12, so we've been through it as well. And I think planning for the 2022 and thinking about 2023, 24 and beyond. When I first came into this job about two and a quarter years ago, which seems time has flown, absolutely flown because of the challenges we've had during that period. But the thing that I was really interested in taking the job initially was A, the engagement and the support and the working with schools and supporting something critical to our education system. But it's also the fact that actually UK qualifications are seen as the gold standard around many, many parts of the world. And I think we do tend to beat ourselves up on, you know, what's wrong with our examination system, what's wrong with you know, GCSEA levels, vocational, everything. But actually, if you go abroad, it has very good press. 
And I think we should think about that and develop and build on it, not necessarily keep trying to shoot ourselves in the foot. Obviously, we've had a couple of challenging years. And what we need to do now is to plan through beyond summer 2021. And of course, in England, there's going to be an autumn 2021 exam series for those who who really feel they could do better in an exam, just as we had last year. But also thinking beyond that, 2022, and then let's get and make sure that GCSE, A-levels, AS-levels continue to be that global gold standard going forward. Philip, thank you so much for your time and for the inside view on this year's grading situation. It strikes me that the whole of the system is trying to balance an impossible and maybe even opposing forces. On the one hand, we're relying on teacher judgment, and that's right. I mean, here is a professional body of people who know students better than anyone else and are in a unique position to assess the level that our young people are performing at. But on the other hand, the system is based on the relative attainment of an entire exam intake Hundreds of thousands of teens sit these exams and the grades are designed to reflect how they rank compared to each other. Grading is relied on by further and higher education institutions as well as employers and it's used to gauge the suitability for those all-important next steps. So in an attempt to bridge the gap, frameworks have been defined to help teachers and exam centres by organisations such as JCQ. The idea, as Philip explained it, is to be as flexible as possible. After all, following the pandemic, there's an entire spectrum of content contributions that schools might have had adequate opportunity to teach. However, remember that we're also trying to demonstrate that the public can have confidence in these grades. I don't think there's any real suggestion that there'll be widespread inflating of grades on behalf of teachers, but... As we've heard from Philip and many guests before, there are two key considerations. Firstly, that teachers only know about the relative performance of their own classes. And secondly, that they will be almost inevitably more optimistic with their grading. So that's where the evidence comes in. It's only through supporting grade decisions with examples of work that exam boards can determine that all teachers are working to the same or at least similar standards. And to keep things consistent and level, it seems that we need parameters around that evidence. For example, that it's broadly the same evidence that's being used across a class or a cohort. Well, there we are. That was easy, wasn't it? Well, of course not. Because herein, at least for me, lies the big issue. How do you go about evidencing a judgment? I mean, it makes sense that, as Philip says, Teachers shouldn't be cherry-picking evidence to support a decision, but at the same time, that's surely taken the edge off of teacher judgment, hasn't it? If the teacher is of the opinion that a student is at a level 7, for example, but the selected evidence of that cohort puts that student at a 6, just how constrained is the teacher? There's a risk that all of this is a bit conceptual and that in reality the vast majority of students will be assessed and get the grades that they deserve, but there is definitely a valid point in trying to make the process robust and that's the Herculean task that JCQ, together with the exam boards and a host of other interested parties, have undertaken. 
And all of this, of course, is backed up by that appeals process, even if it's unlikely that the appeals are likely to hold much weight. The impact in reality is that many schools are now running further assessments. And this is a way of them providing benchmark sets of results that can be used in evidence, calling on the example questions and the exemplars that are coming from the exam boards. Now, these vary from school to school, and perhaps even from teacher to teacher within a school. And it can be a source of frustration and anxiety for a lot of students. But as we heard Philip say, this isn't the end of it. Teachers will be sharing what evidence is being used with students. And while it's clear that this is not up for horse trading, it's only natural to imagine that there might be a discussion to be had over any extraordinary circumstances. What we do know is that teachers are going to be doing their utmost to provide the kinds of outcomes that accurately and genuinely reflect their students' capabilities. If we don't believe that of our teachers, then there's a bigger problem, more than one year's worth of results. I've said it before, and I reckon I'll probably say it again, but this is an imperfect situation, and so it's unrealistic to imagine that there's a perfect solution. But I'm constantly reassured by talking to Philip and the others at heads of these organisations that everyone is genuinely committed to working together to try to get the fairest solution for the young people affected. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode as interesting as, as I did. If you did, would you mind taking a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too? It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.